to get this up here. One more time. There we go. Now I can see my notes. That will really help. Good morning, everyone. I'm really pleased to be here speaking with you today. Uh, today we're going to continue our Body Life series. So last week, our brother Paul spoke about what a blessing and a privilege it is to be part of the body and how that should excite us. He also discussed how we need to have a biblically-based pattern for our lives, and he called love the glue that holds us all together. So this week, we're going to move on and we're going to discuss the unity of the body. And so as I was getting ready to speak this morning, thinking about what I would say and uh, how I should say it, uh, something from my mother came to my mind. And uh, I find that a lot of the things that my mother has taught me over the years uh, come to my mind when I'm preparing for sermons. And this one was no different. Um, and I'm actually blessed to have her here this morning. Um, there was a little phrase that she always used to use when Christians had trouble getting along. And it was, Oh, to live above with saints we love, that will be such glory. To live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> I think that phrase sums up a lot of what goes on in churches. We all look forward to heaven, right? But we have a difficult time getting along here on earth. Now today as we talk about unity, you may hear some things that concern you. As with anything else, you need to take it in the context and the spirit in which it's given. So just because we speak about something doesn't mean that it's a problem for us. In fact, it may be something that we do rather well. So here's a little piece of advice that I picked up at camp, which is if it applies to you, take it to heart. If not, let it roll off your backs. But as we tackle this very difficult topic, uh, we should recognize that we're in way over our heads. I know I am. Um, but that's okay, because we have the Holy Spirit. So before we go any further, I'd like to just take a moment and pray and ask for God's guidance on our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the body, the church that you've given us, Lord, a home and a family. Um, Lord, that home doesn't always work the way it should. Uh, so today, we turn to you, we humble our hearts before you, and we pray that you would teach us from the great words you have given us how we can experience the home and the family that you want the body to be in unity. We also lift up, Lord, just those that are teaching the children. Um, we pray, Lord, that your word would begin to permeate their hearts and that you would raise up the next generation that will follow you preach your word, and share your gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, the, uh, the impacts of disunity are easy to see in the church. In the beginning, there was just one church, right? Now there's many different denominations. Some of these denominations arose through doctrinal differences or maybe as a result of persecution, which would be very serious forms of disunity. But many of them also arose just because Christians couldn't figure out how to live as brothers and sisters. Um, maybe one group couldn't get along with another, so what do they do? They pull out of the church and they start their own. And even on a more smaller level, within the church, between individuals, tremendous hurt has been done between individuals that can't get along, often over some things that are very, very minor. Um, 
And the most tragic part of all this is not the, the hurt in the multiple de denominations, that is a problem, but most tragically is the fact that the failure of Christians to live together in unity has affected how people see Christ. Now this morning, I want to try something a little different, and I really hope this works um, since it relies on technology. This is actually one of the few times in church we're going to ask everyone to pull out their smartphones instead of putting them away. And I want to get a feel from the congregation as to what you think some of the main sources of disunity are, maybe that we have here at Terrell Road, or maybe just in the church in general. So I'm going to try and switch screens, and at the top of the screen you'll see a phone number. And I want you to text a one-word answer of what you see as a source of disunity to that phone number. And uh, hopefully the answers will start popping up on the screen in a word cloud. And so if a lot of people send in one word, the, that word will get bigger. And we'll know what people are thinking about. Um, so you can even text in more than once, but try not to skew the results by sending in like 50 texts. <laughs> so let's, let's see if this works here. All right. So that, can everyone see the phone number? Oh, nobody can see anything. There you go. If it doesn't work, we'll go analog and just call them out. Oh, pride, okay. Yes, this is, this is anonymous, by the way, so. <laughs> All right, somebody texted the music for you. Yes, I'll give you just another couple of minutes here to. Another 10 seconds, I want to. Okay. Should I take another advantage of technology? Take a picture of this. All right, so we Definitely have some big ones in there. Tradition, pride, personalities, selfishness. Music is a little large. Then uh, there's entitlement, lack of grace, unthinking. Broken tradition in contrast to tradition. Um, differences, differing opinions, wanting to control things, gender roles, anger, hate, arrogance, self-centered, fatigue, stubbornness, closed-mindedness, sin, preference, jealousy, generation, discontent, and traditions. So. 
So I, I had my doubts that that was going to work. So that was the next slide. <laughs> but I was surprised. There, there's, there was quite a few responses up there. Uh, some of them weren't really a surprise. Uh, you know, you expected to see tradition and pride and, you know, music um, to show up. Um, However, in reality, these, these are not sources of disunity. These are only manifestations of disunity. You see, all disunity has the same source, and that source is sin. And actually, there was one answer of sin in the, the, uh, the poll there. Now, this is not one of those messages where I'm going to stand up here and shake my fist and condemn the sinners. Um, that just wouldn't work very well. But the real reason is because we're, we're all sinners, right? Those of us who know Christ have been redeemed. But we all struggle with the sin and its effects. And of course, some of those effects take place on the church. What we know is that God made the church. Last week, our brother Paul spoke about how beautiful the church is. And we know that God made the church with a purpose and that he made it good. However, as is the case with all things that are good, the problems with them arise from sin. We can see this in things like marriage and parenting, right? Those were from God. They were intended to be images of his love for us. And what happened? As soon as man got a hold of marriage, what did he do? He invented divorce. You know, man was given the role of parenting. And what happened? Well, you have things like child neglect. Um, and the church is no different. It's a good thing from God. Um, but it suffers. It suffers from the sin. And recognizing this is the first step towards any progress in restoring the church to what God intended it to be. Fortunately, just as with all problems caused by sin, God has provided the solution. And that solution is always the same. It's Jesus, right? So just like you may have heard, everything I ever needed to know, I learned in kindergarten, Well, in this case, for the most part, everything you ever need to know about the church, you learned in Sunday school. That's one of the reasons why our Sunday school programs and our youth programs are so important and why we celebrated them last week. What we're going to see, though, is that this is a spiritual issue. And as such, we can't look to the physical world for the solutions. That means we can't program our way out of disunity and into unity. No matter how many times we get everybody together and we hold hands and we sing Kumbaya, it will not make us into a unified church. Now, does that absolve us of any responsibility? Absolutely not. Nothing spiritual happens by our own effort, but God in his grace includes us in his work. So we are most certainly responsible to teach what the word of God says about the church, and we're responsible to model it within the body here. We are also responsible to trust that the Holy Spirit will be at work as he promised. Now, I personally believe that as a member here and as an elder here, that I'll be accountable to God someday for how we teach these things and how we model them. That's a humbling and a frightening thought, but it's also very motivating. So what is the church? We should know what we're talking about. Um, Today we're going to focus on the local church, the local body of believers. What I want to say is that the local church is not a boutique store. It's not like Yankee Candles or Godiva chocolate. You don't come in and find just one type of thing or just one brand of something. 
My point is you cannot create unity in the body by stripping out everyone and everything you don't like or don't agree with. Attempting to do so is a fallacy that has caused so much heartache and damage to the church. I'd liken the church more to a farmer's market. You get whatever your locality has to offer. Right? At a farmer's market, everything is different. Right? It's made a little differently. It comes from a different source. A lot of times it's dug up out of the ground. It's been exposed to the elements. None of it is perfect anymore. It wasn't created in a factory. It didn't roll off an assembly line where everything's exactly the same or flawless. It wasn't raised in a greenhouse where it was protected from nature. No, what you get is you get the flaws, the imperfections, and the scars of everything that comes in. And you bring in your own flaws and imperfections and scars. And together, you're supposed to find a family that loves you. The church is the complete body of believers. From the smallest baby, I think in our case, Iris holds that title at the moment, to the oldest member. I'm not going to try and name names on that one. How do we know these things, right? Everything we say should be backed up. So how do I know that it covers the old and the young? Because in Mark chapter 10, we read, the people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus heard this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. In John, in 1 John chapter 2, John writes instructions to young men, and then he writes instructions to the older men that he refers to as fathers. In Titus, Paul sends instructions to the older men and the older women. And what are those instructions? to teach the younger men and the younger women. So we know it covers all age groups. It also covers the entire socioeconomic spectrum, from a single mother struggling to get by to the successful business owner. How do I know that? Because James chapter 2 talks about the rich man and the poor man coming into the same church and how you treat them. Because Jesus invited Nicodemus and Levi, who were wealthy and at the top of their society, And he also invited the poor fishermen and the farmers and the shepherds. It covers those who may have never graduated high school to those that have PhDs. How do I know this? Because Jesus spent his time inviting those who were so uneducated that he had to tell them stories about farming and nature in order for them to understand. When the disciples spoke in Acts, it was noted that they were uneducated men and indistinguishable from everyone else, except for the fact that they had been in the company of Jesus. But he also extended the invitation to Paul, who was probably one of the great minds of his time, and perhaps one of the great minds of all time. So he covered all ranges of intellect. It also covers those that have led what would be considered good lives to those who ought to be in prison, or may have been in prison. How do we know this? Well, Jesus called the man who thought he was so good that he had kept the Ten Commandments. We don't know if this man came, but he was invited. We also know that he forgave the thief on the cross, who by his own admission was rightfully condemned, and he promised that that day they would be together in paradise. 
It covers those that can trace their roots back in this country hundreds of years to those who have just arrived, to those who are around the world. How do I know this? Because Jesus healed the Samaritan and the centurion's servants, as well as the Jews. And he sent Peter to the lost sheep of Israel, but he was also given a vision to go to witness to Cornelius. And Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, was sent to the Gentiles. We also know this because of the great, wonderful passage in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. There is but one characteristic that defines this group, and that is it consists of those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And on that basis, they are assigned a place. And that place is before the throne of God. He loves them and he shelters them. It's the only place I want to be. You see, people speak of various churches. And we may use certain church, uh, terms for reference, but there is no such thing as the American church or the Canadian church or the European church. God's church consists of those who have been redeemed by Christ. The church should be reflective of the community. We live in a world where some seem to think we can have designer churches, a church for the young, cool people, an old person's church, a church for the wealthy, a church for the poor, a black church, and a white church. Now, this may be what is done, but it's not right. Let me repeat what I said earlier. It is a fallacy to believe that you can create a unified church by narrowing the group of people in the church to a select group that you get along with. First of all, you're never going to find a group of people exactly like yourself who will agree with you on everything. But more importantly, even if you could find that group of people, it wouldn't be a church. You see, the first element to unity is that you have to have all the pieces. So just like a jigsaw puzzle, right? You can't make the puzzle unless you have all the pieces. Or an Ikea furniture set. Not a fan of Ikea. You may have all the wood, and it may look great when you fit it together, but it's those funny-looking metal things that actually hold everything together. And if you lose one of those while you're moving, forget it. The whole thing is ruined. The church is the same. Without all its parts present and working together, it can't be what it's supposed to be. It may stumble along, and it may look good from the outside, but it will not be complete and it will not be what God wants it to be. So if we have all the pieces, what would unity look like? There are several key passages people turn to, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which Paul referenced last week, speaking of one body and many parts. Or perhaps the beautiful passage in Psalm 133, which starts out, how good and pleasant it is 
when brothers live together in unity. Well, today we're going to focus on the words of Christ and what he says about unity. The Lord spent his final moments before he was arrested in prayer. This prayer is often called the high priestly prayer, and it's captured in John 17. In that he prayed, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So first of all, the context. Who is the Lord speaking to? The Lord says, my prayer is not for them alone, speaking of the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That is us. We've been specifically identified in this passage. Now, while we shouldn't ignore any scripture, when God takes the time in his grace to specifically identify us, it would be good to listen. Next, he says, that all of them may be one. It is the desire of the Lord that we should be one. So now that we know what he's talking about and who he's talking to, let's explore what exactly this oneness is. The Lord makes it clear that the oneness he desires for us is the same as the oneness he shares with the Father. That oneness is held up as a model for us. He says in verse 11, that they may be one as we are one. And in verse 22, or sorry, verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Verse 22, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. In the final moments before he's arrested, this is the last thing that he does. He knows that his time is short, and what does he do? He spends it praying for unity in the church. He says it four times. I want the church to be unified like my father and me. I want the church to be unified like my father and me. I want the church to be unified like my father and me. I want the church to be unified like my father and me. If you take your Bible and compress all the red-letter text into one block, you might only have like 15 or 20 pages. And so here you have the very words spoken by God himself. And out of that relatively small text that the Lord spoke while he was here on earth, we have this item repeated four times at an exactly critical moment in his ministry. So again, we cannot afford to take this casually. This was something the Lord was very, very serious about. Now someday, we will be part of that throng in heaven and we'll know the complete unity that the Lord wants for us. 
But his instruction is for those of us who are still in the world. So how do we do this? Well, as always, the Lord does not call on us to do anything he has not equipped us for and prepared the way for. The Lord prayed for us. While we may have difficulties knowing what to pray for and understanding the Lord's answer, this was not the case with Christ. He knew the will of his Father. He knew the Father would answer him. And this is what he prayed for. He knew that we would need help since we were still in the world. So he prayed, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Right? He's praying for us. The Lord tells us what he wants us to look like. He wants us to be one as we are one, speaking of him and the Father. So what does it mean to be one as he and the Father are one? That requires looking at the relationship between the Father and the Son. This is something we looked at last summer. We went through the Apostles' Creed. And there's some key verses. One of the verses is Deuteronomy 6.4. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. God is made up of three persons. And yet when he describes himself with a single word, he uses the word one. If we want to know what unity looks like, we need to look at God. We know, of course, that Christ is part of the Trinity. In John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, as we read on, we see that that Word is Christ. Christ is indistinguishable from God. To talk about one is to talk about both of them. He is not sort of like God or just a part of God. He was God. He is God. Christ enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. Just the same way that God describes himself in Deuteronomy. The Father and the Son in perfect unity for eternity. That's the model that we're given. And we get to be partakers in that. Right? He says, I in them and you in me. If we are in Christ and Christ is in the Father, then we are in the Father. That happened through the perfect sacrifice that Christ was about to make just after he spoke these words. Now we also want to see this as a gift from God and a gift to God. So what do we mean by that? Well, the first one's a little easier to see. How is it a gift from God? We can feel it in our lives, right? Disunity hurts. We long for unity, and here we have the perfect example of it in the Father and in Jesus. But it's not an exclusive unity. Going back to our passage in John 17, where the Lord says, I in them and you in me. He includes us in it. Well, if the Lord is in us and he is in the Father, then we are in the Father. Today, we're in the Father through the Son and through the Spirit that's given us. But someday, we're in Christ's glorious kingdom. We'll be united to them as the bride of Christ. We have an opportunity to taste that today in the unity that we're supposed to have here during the church. That is what I would call a gift from God. 
So how is it a gift to God? Well, the Lord cites two outcomes of the unity he wants us to have. The first one is in verse 21. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the second one is in verse 23. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity affirms who Christ is. And when we do that, we bring him glory. We bring him glory not just because it's obeying his command, but because it's affirming who he is. We have nothing to give that God needs, but he wants us to honor him and glorify him, which is what we do through exhibiting the unity that he desires for us. Now, I have a friend who works for Campus Crusade, and uh, we support him. I guess they go by crew now. And less than a week ago, he sent me his update letter, and uh, this is how you know that God is just working behind the scenes sometimes. I'm going to read you the first two paragraphs of it. Um, starts out, In Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, he prays that we would be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This has taken on a fresh meaning. For several days last week, I was able to join other crew leaders around the country to participate in the Lenses Institute, which makes an effort to help us see more clearly the racial issues in our country. Specifically, as believers, how it affects our oneness, both within crew as well as with those we are seeking to share the gospel with. I have always felt since my early days with crew that a lack of oneness is potentially one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel going forth on our campuses. I have frequently referenced John 17 with various teams that I have led. When we think of bringing the gospel to university students, our love for one another is one of our most powerful apologetics. The Institute helped lift my eyes to see how this can be understood in light of our issues of national racism. This, of course, is incredibly complex and has caused me to begin to wonder about how the Lord may want the church in this country to respond. However, as I reflected on this, I know that at least it starts in our own families, neighborhoods, and churches. If we cannot address the issues locally, it seems nearly impossible to address them on a larger scale. So, you know, miles and miles away, he, draw the he drew the same connection, that our unity is a vessel for the gospel and that the exercise of that unity starts in the local church. So how do we do any of this? Well, even if I was a dynamic speaker with wise and exciting words, I could only fire you up for a couple of minutes, right? I could not change the condition of your heart. <laughs> so while this is not very encouraging, it's true. But here's something that is both encouraging and true. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others 
above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul's desire is to have his joy made complete by Christians living in unity. Look at how Paul starts, first by discussing unity with Christ. Then he lists the benefits of unity with Christ, including unity with the Spirit. He then goes on to say, if you have these things, his joy will be complete if you are also unified. Then make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. That is the same as the desire of the elders here. So much of what comes our way as elders is a product of disunity. But so much of the joy we also realize as elders is when we see the unity exercised in the church the way it's supposed to be. And that makes everything else worthwhile. So my request to you is the same as Paul's. Make our joy complete by living in unity. So how does this happen? Well, it starts first with a love for Christ. Then you put others before yourself. And how do we do that? We do that by having the same attitude as Christ. Right? It says, in your relationships with one another, verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this text goes on to discuss the loving nature of Christ, the servant nature of Christ, the sacrificial nature of Christ, and I wish we had time to dig into all those points, uh, but we don't. Um, but at this point, back to the interactive part, I want you to turn to your neighbor, make sure they're awake and listening, because if you've missed everything up to this point, don't worry. Here's the main point. Remember when we started, I told you that the answer to unity was Jesus? Well, here in Philippians chapter 2, we see that that answer is to have the character of Christ. So this is how we obtain unity. If you engage in a wholehearted, reckless, unrestrained, unrelenting pursuit of Christ and his character, you will see your brothers and sisters here as part of your own body, and you will look past what is on the outside which divides, and you will see them as loved by God and precious in his sight. You will see them as broken sinners awaiting the fulfillment of Christ's promise that one day they will see him and be like him. When you see them this way, you will see yourself, and then we will be unified, because in that respect, there will be no differences among us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, in your last moments, before you gave your life up for us, you turned your heart and your mind, not to yourself, but to us, in the unity that you desire to have with us, and the unity you desire for us to have with each other. And Lord, we know that uh, this world is corrupted and ultimately wasting away. But Lord, you made a way to build a church for yourself, a church that can be unified by following you, by loving you, and by taking on your character.
Lord, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, through the teaching of your word, Lord, that you would shape our hearts, that we would turn to you, Lord, that we would have a desire for unity, a desire that comes from you, and that we would assume your character, Lord, and that within this church here and beyond, we would exhibit the unity that pleases you. We pray that you would guide us as we leave here, Lord, that this would not just be a Sunday morning thing, but that our lives would be permeated by this unity. We pray this in your name. Amen.